Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. If there is a book in the Bible that convinces me of the authority and the inspiration of Scripture, one of those books is the book of Judges. Now, that might seem strange to you, but as, as I've been pondering it, uh, if, you were to, if you were to create your own religion and you were to create your own religious book that, that was written in a way that would cause people to say, this is the greatest thing in the world, this God is great, this people are great, you wouldn't include the book of Judges. Because the book of Judges is not a story of God's people at their best. It is, in fact, often the exact opposite of that. It is a book that reveals to us the grace of God as He works with, their, with His people in their cycle of rebellion and crying out to Him in their distress. But as the book continues, it becomes more and more violent and more and more of a struggle. And I think the reason why God includes it is because it reveals so much of our human struggle. One of the places we see that is here in this 12th chapter of the book of Judges. We didn't read the 11th chapter, but the 11th chapter sets the tone sort of for the 12th chapter. It is a story of the people of Gilead who uh, live on the east side of the Jordan River, and they are attacked by the nation of Ammon. And the Ammonites come, and they, and they threaten them, and they attack them. And so the people of Gilead come to Jephthah and say, save us. And Jephthah says, why should I save you? You kicked me out because you said I was worthless, and I had this, this terrible past, and you didn't want me. And they said, well, we want you now. And so they negotiate, and he takes his renegade army, and he defeats the Ammonites. And after that battle, they come back to Gilead, and everything seems great until we come to the 12th chapter, and the people of Ephraim, the tribe of Ephraim, comes across the Jordan River and says, why didn't you call us to help you? They have a history of doing that. They do the same thing with Gideon. I don't know exactly what it is that motivates the people of Ephraim to come and accuse Jephthah and to be so, so antagonistic toward him, but they are. And it creates this escalating situation in which Jephthah responds and says, well, I did ask you and you didn't come, and so I had to do it all myself. And then they start calling, calling Jephthah and the people of Gilead derogatory names, and that leads to this massacre in the Jordan River. And the thing that strikes me about this story is that it's really a story about boundaries. And that's why the road sign that I think speaks to into this story and symbolizes this story for us, uh, the road signs that I would call boundary markers. Things like uh, the name of a town or a county or, or places like that where you, or a state I don't know if you've seen that sign before, but it intrigued me when I looked it up. I thought it was interesting. At the, you have the, these signs that, in essence, are boundary markers. You're, you're a part of this community, and now you're moving into a different community. You're part of this county. You're in this county, and now you're going to go to a different county. You're in this state. You're going to a different state. 
In some places of the world, we'd be going from this country to that country. We have these boundary markers, and boundary markers are not bad. In fact, boundary markers are necessary for us to have organized a civic government. This goes all the way back to Moses. You go back to Moses, and he's brought the people out of Egypt, and, and they are just this mass of people. And, and it tells us in Exodus that Moses is trying to handle all of it. And his father-in-law says, you can't do that. You need to divide the people up into smaller groups and appoint people over them and, and so that they can then begin to, uh, to, to adjudicate cases for you. You see this when they get to the tribes of Israel, and they get to Canaan, and they conquer the land. And God says, all right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to divide up the land and assign tribes to it. And the tribes are divided up to enable them to have government, to enable them to, to handle things that you couldn't do on a mass scale. There's good in that. Look at creation. God creates boundaries in creation. He creates the, the, the land and the sea and the boundary between. He creates the boundaries of day and night. He creates the boundaries of the waters and the, and the earth. And he creates these boundaries even that keep the water within the, the shore, within the, the frame of where they are. Otherwise, they flood everything. Boundary markers are not bad until they are. And the problem with boundary markers is that they can become so important to us that if we're not careful, they begin to define us. And the kind of boundary markers that tend to define us, sometimes they're geographical, sometimes they're civically related, but more often than not, they are, they are things like ideology or theology or politics. Ways in which we draw circles and say, all right, this is a good group because I'm in it. And that's a bad group because I'm not in it. And we make these boundary lines with each other. And instead of using them for good, we use them to divide us. And they create bad scenarios. And it seems so innocuous it seems as if, well, you know, I'm in this group, you're in that group, I'm in, you're out. And we do these things, and, and again, they're not necessarily in and of themselves always wrong. But what seems innocuous can lead to things like 42,000 Ephraimites lying dead by the Jordan River. Who would have ever dreamed when that whole thing started, that's how it would end? Who would have ever dreamed that our differences could lead to, to things that we could never have imagined? In her book, uh, Disunity in Christ, Christina Cleveland talks about a lot of uh, social research that she's been involved in and others. And one of the things she talks about is there's been a lot of research done on how groups are formed. And she talks about how, you know, they put people who had take 200 people, none of them know each other. They put them into arbitrary groups, and within a matter of, of minutes, they begin to start thinking who's in, who's out. And they start having animosity toward people who are in and who are, toward people who are out of their group. And, this, and it becomes this conflict even. But she said, the studies have shown that the very worst conflict and the most animosity is not about people who are in and out of a group. It's about the subgroups that are created from the people who are in the in-group. So you have people who are all in the same group, 
And then they break off into smaller subgroups. And, and the, most, the most animosity and the most negative feelings are in those groups far more than they are from people who are outside of that group altogether. And it strikes me that one of the most dangerous places for us as Christians is not so much our attitude toward people who are outside the church, but our attitude about each other within the church. And the boundaries that we draw that become so important to us are, are rarely about who's, who's following Jesus and who's not, but within the larger scope of who's following Jesus. And it's in those scenarios that we can become people that we would have never dreamed possible. And we create scenarios and situations that in the beginning we could have never dreamed possible. Now, I understand why we do that. Because we're passionate about what we're talking about. Whether it's theology or ideology or politics or whatever it may be. We're passionate about it. It's vitally important to us. And so those kinds of things we feel strongly about. And we should. And we're not saying that all of us have to think exactly the same. God didn't create us the same, and, and our, our experiences are different, our way of seeing things are different. And actually, I think that can be a strength, but we often make it a weakness. We often turn it into something that is not unifying us and making us better because we bring all of our different ideas and thoughts. It's something that divides us. Because we have drawn boundary markers. One of the most dangerous places for us to be is when we start saying things like, well, you're really only a Christian if. You're really only a Christian if you have this theology or you have that ideology or even if you have that political position. What ends up happening is the boundary markers become more important to us than they should be. I've been asking myself, why do we do that? What is it? You know, why, we think about the story with Jephthah. What is it about that story that, that causes the, the action, to him to take this action? Probably there are a number of things going on. I assume there are with us as well. I think one of the things that we wrestle with is, is fear. You certainly see this if you watch a handful of political ads, you find that most of the motivation is related to fear. If this person's elected, everything's going to fall apart. If that person's elected, everything's going to fall apart. I hear that theologically sometimes with people. If you embrace this theology, you're, you're going down a bad slope. And if you embrace this theology, you're going down a bad slope. And, and, and we do that, and we create this atmosphere of fear. And the fear causes us to fight. And sometimes we have disagreements because we don't always see things the same way. But when we're motivated by fear, we often are more intent on being right and on convincing everybody else we're right. And we will take action and say words that we couldn't have imagined to prove to people that we're right. 
and we justify behavior that in any other way we probably wouldn't justify. And we do it not with so much with people outside the church, but with each other as brothers and sisters. There is something also in us that wants to win. It's probably related to fear. Fear of losing, fear of being wrong, fear of of finding out that maybe everything we believe isn't exactly right. And so we, we get in this mindset that we have to win. And winning at all costs becomes our passion. And I'm not sure we always think of that uh, I'm not sure we, it's always, we always realize that that's what we're thinking, but often that's how the behavior comes out. That's how our words come out. Isn't it phenomenal that all of these people die because of one word? One word. Nobody really, as far as I could tell, no one really even knows what that word means. It, it's sort of just a word that, that has, it has no meaning to it, but it's the way they pronounce it. And we all know that we judge people based on how we pronounce words, right? I mean, you see it. We live in a country where we have all kinds of different accents, from New England to the South to the West to Southern California, all over the place. We have different accents, the Midwest. And sometimes we can get caught up in that and, and we make value judgments about people by how they talk. But this has taken that a whole different level. But the reality is words matter. And sometimes, I mean, I, I would suspect that there aren't any of us who are, who are followers of Jesus that would consider what happened here in any way appropriate. But what about the words we use that injure people and harm people and hurt people? We can be so intent on winning, on making sure everyone knows that we're right, that the way we go about communicating it is not in any way unifying, it's destructive. And we leave a, carn- a pathway of carnage behind us, and we get to the end of that, and we might feel bad about the carnage, but something in us says, but it's justified because I'm right. And as important as it is to have good theology, and as important as it is to take stands about things that are vital to the kingdom, If we leave carnage in our path, I'm not sure we can really say we're right. Because Jesus never says, they'll know you're my disciples if you're right. Or they'll know you're my disciples if you have the right position, if you take the right stand, if you have the right theology. He simply says, they'll know you're my disciples if you love each other. And that doesn't mean, I don't think Jesus is saying that thinking right in right ways is insignificant or having good theology is insignificant or or reading the scriptures the right way is insignificant. I think he's simply saying none of us 
truly get all of it. And how people will judge us is how we treat each other. One of the things I'm asking myself about this story is where is God in this story? Where, does, where do you see God showing up in this story? Where's the writer talking about God in the story? There's one little reference that Jephthah makes in the story about how God gave him victory over the Ammonites, and I think that's true. I think God did give them victory over the Ammonites and protected them from being attacked. But when you look at this story, what I find, the answer to that question, where is God here, there is a sense in which the answer to that question is nowhere. I don't think you can say that anyone in this story in chapter 12 is a good guy, is a, is a, is a good representation of God. I think what you find is groups of people saying, in this moment, God is not that important to us. And what God wants us to do and be is not that important to us. We're going to do what we want to do, the way we want to do it. And I think that goes back to Judges chapter 2, verse 10. When God, when, when it's the writer says to us that when the generation of Joshua, when Joshua's generation died, there arose a new generation, it says, that forgot who God was and what God did. And I think that is the foundation for the whole book of Judges. You have this continual stream of people and stories who have forgotten who God is and what God has done. They have forgotten that God brought them out of Egypt. They have forgotten who God is as the Almighty God. And sometimes we can be so enamored by our boundaries. We become so enamored by the things that set us apart, we forget who God is. We forget that he is the king of kings and lord of lords. We forget that he is the creator of all things. We forget that, that he is the ruler of all things. That he is the almighty God and he alone knows what is right and true and good. And our lives are not about being right. Our lives are about surrendering to him. And so whatever, however an election turns out, the thing we have to keep coming back to is Jesus is still Lord. The great missionary Hudson Taylor used to say, Jesus is either Lord of all or not Lord at all. And I think as I was reading something this week, I think that we tend to think about that as a, in our own lives. And I think that's appropriate. Say, is, is Christ Lord of all of our life? If he's not, then is he even Lord at all? But I wonder if, if Hudson Taylor wasn't thinking about something bigger. That if, if Jesus, is, Jesus is either Lord of all things, or he's not Lord of anything. I mean, either God is the almighty God the creator of heaven and earth, and the ruler of all things, or he's not. 
And when it comes to our boundaries, far too often we think subconsciously our boundaries are what's most important. And that's only a sign that we have forgotten who God is. That he's the king. That Jesus is Lord. That every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. And I think that there's something of that in what Jesus says to his disciples on that last night just before he goes to the cross. Sitting around that table, Jesus shares with them what he says is his broken body and his shed blood. And then he says to them, remember. Remember. Remember what I am doing for you. Remember that your value and worth is not in what you believe or in what you accomplish or in what you do. Your value and worth is in me and what I do for you on the cross. You are my beloved children. And when you know you're God's beloved children, then disagreements and boundaries don't become things that divide us. They become things in which that enrich us. They make us stronger. They, they help us understand things that we haven't seen before. They expand our horizons. They make us more like Jesus. One of the things about this story that's repeated is the crossing over. It talks about how they're, they, that they crossed over the river and then they crossed back over the river. And when you get to verses 5 and 6, it talks about them crossing at places where it was shallow and people crossed the river. And that crossing place became a place of death. But it was intended to be a place that united them. There were tribes living on both sides of the Jordan River and God provided these shallow places so they could go back and forth and, and continue to be bonded to each other and connected to each other and to share life with each other. And God does the same thing for us. The question for us is, when we think about crossing boundaries, what's our motivation? Is it to connect and to unite and to learn and to grow from each other as beloved children of God? Or do we cross the boundaries to judge and to convince and to make sure that everybody knows we're on the right side and they're not? See, one of the questions that I think we wrestle with when we aren't quite sure that we are truly loved by God unconditionally, we start talking not just, not just who's on God's side, but we start thinking more about whose side is God on. And that is a very different discussion. Because the difference is, we, are we both on God's side? Even if we have different opinions, even if we have different mindsets, even if we see things differently, are we united in being on God's side? 
Or are we asking the question, is God on my side? Or even more, making the statement, God's on our side. Implying God's not on your side. And when we start thinking like that, we start justifying all kinds of behavior that would otherwise things that we would never be able to justify at all. Paul writes to the church in Philippi, have this mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And what is the mindset of Christ Jesus? Though he had power, though he was right always, though he saw everything perfectly, though he has everything of God and every right to it, he humbles himself and surrenders himself to the will and the purposes of God. As we prepare to come to this table, I'm convinced that God God's desire for us is to come united in Him. Our boundaries can be different. They're going to be different. But we're united in Christ. We're united in Christ who is Lord and King of all. We're united in Christ who makes us through His grace and love His beloved children. And together... We create a witness to the world that needs Jesus. Holy Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy to us. We ask, Father, that you would give us grace to unite our hearts in you, our minds in you, our spirits in you, as your beloved children. We pray, Father, your anointing and blessing upon the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake. May it be food for our souls. May it remind us of who you are. And may we be filled with the fullness of your spirit that we might bear the image of Christ to each other to the whole world. In his name we pray, amen.